Welcome to the DTP podcast for October 2017, volume 55, number 10. My name is David Fazakli, DTP's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, uh, editor-in-chief. Our editorial this month is entitled Flagging Risk. James, what's this one about? So we are looking at the fragmentation, I suppose, of information regarding drugs that have a risk associated with them. To make that clearer, what we're doing is looking beyond new drugs, which obviously have a black triangle against their names, and everyone is aware that there's a a possible risk that long-term risks may be associated with that drug that have not yet been found. So there's that issue which we're not looking at. What we're looking at is drugs that have perhaps been on the market for many years, but then some risk occurs, and how that is advised to clinicians prescribers and uh, patients. So the regulatory authorities talk about risk minimization measures and at the most basic that's the SPC, Summary of Product Characteristics, the Patient Information Leaflet, Pack Size, uh, License, that deals with sort of the basic risk management but what you're talking about is the additional risk minimization measures for specific problems identified for specific drugs. Precisely. We've looked at these recently with uh, sodium valproate and the MHRA's warning regarding that and pregnancy. And what we've sort of recognised is that actually this information comes down to clinicians in in a really hodgepodge uh, way. Sometimes it's by direct communication through letter. And of course, that means that one hopes that if you're a, um, a locum GP, that somehow that letter gets to you, or it might be that it comes in, in other ways as well, or it may be that you have to go looking. So maybe you have to go to the BNF or whatever source of information you use. And then at that point, as perhaps you are in the middle of prescribing it, discover that there is a risk associated with this drug that perhaps you weren't aware of, and then you need to act on it. And, and that's our problem, I think, we, we feel, is at the moment... There's not a single source, there's not a single way that a doctor can be aware of which drugs are flagged as having a risk associated with them. So when we looked at it earlier today, we found that on the Electronic Medicines Compendium site, they have a a drop-down box for risk minimization measures, and you can go looking for it. Yes, and I have to say, you know, here I am, you know. I've been editor of the DTB for a while. I was completely unaware of that. And I've been a GP for over 20 years. And I'm sure that if we were to ask a thousand GPs, none of them would know about that. So there is something about it is there, but quite hard. Well, not hard to find, but but it's... You've got to know it's there. Absolutely. So there's an issue about knowing it exists and then knowing where where to find it. So what... What possible solutions could there be? Well, we we feel the simplest solution would be to have a new symbol. So if a drug is, is highlighted as having a risk associated with it, then there should be a new symbol that is put against that drug's name, uh, against all the reference material, BNF, on the SPC, um, wherever it might be, that highlights to everyone. In fact, it could even be on the box so that when the pharmacist dispenses it and when the patient sees it, they are aware that this drug has been flagged up as having a risk associated with it. And obviously then the details would be in the patient uh, information leaflet or would be available for pharmacists and clinicians to look online. So at the moment we just have the black triangle which warns us that there are some risks and that we need to be vigilant about reporting 
risks but doesn't tell us about these additional ones no and as as we also found today you know sometimes you can have a, a drug fentanyl it was an example we looked at where some of the preparations had the black triangle and, and some didn't so we've even got this situation where there's no consistency in the current system so a better system required indeed thank you our first main article this month looks at proton pump inhibitors uh, and in particular we look at long-term adverse effects why have we chosen this one? So this has been something that's been quietly collecting fluff, if you like, for some time. So proton pump inhibitors, incredibly successful drugs since they came onto the market in the 1980s. Uh, the latest information we have from 2016 is that there were 58 million prescriptions for PPI. So that's one for almost every person living in the UK. £100 million pounds worth. And in Wales, about one in 10 people are thought to be on a PPI. So this is an incredibly commonly prescribed drug. And over the years, as I say, it's begun to pick up concerns regarding long-term side effects. And we look at those in the article. So we know that short-term use and sort of the very common problems that are reported in the BNF don't really cause patients many difficulties? No, indeed. I mean, you know, I think any clinician uh, would tell you that PPIs actually on the whole very rarely have patients coming back telling you about side effects. But as you say, over the years, accumulation of either safety warnings or signals of safety and what sort of things do we cover? So you're right. I mean, it, it's it's collected quietly over the years. A clutch of MHRA warnings about hypomagnesemia, um, its risk with clopidogrel, concerns about subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus. Uh, so we look at those. We look at the concerns about bone fracture risk uh, and the risk of Clostridium difficile infections as well. And I guess part of the problem is that we're dealing with things that range from the odd case report so the odd, odd problem that may just be a handful of cases to some quite large but again observational studies that suggest that there is an association but not causality this is the the issue throughout all the evidence we looked at is that invariably these come from observational studies you know big ones you know nurses health study is a, is a big study been going on for many years and that picked up this concern that, that hip fractures may be more common in patients taking a proton pump inhibitor than those not. But but the numbers are difficult and in places also perhaps much less than you might imagine. So when we looked at the clostridium risk, for example, the study that particularly looked at this, we're talking about a number needed to treat to prevent one episode of clostridium, if you believe in the causality, is about 4,000 patients in a year in the community. It's much lower though in hospital work perhaps a number needed to harm of, of 50, so 50 patients treated in hospital, you might prevent, uh, might cause, sorry, one episode of clostridium. But those are very speculative figures. But it's it's like everything. This this drug is commonly used, and it's just picking up a, a bit of noise surrounding it, really. And we detail that in this article. And, of course, with such widespread use, you only need a small increase in harms to affect a lot of, lot of people. Exactly. And I think, you know, all clinicians, particularly in, in uh, primary care, will recognise as well that we probably over-prescribe these drugs. And we're probably not good at thinking about the simple lifestyle 
uh, interventions that people can do. And I'm, I'm always amazed how often if I say to patients, you know, have you done the simple things like raised the head of your bed or, you know, they often have absolutely no concept that that might be something that's useful doing if they have reflux at night. So I think it, the other aspect of this article is looking at how we might step down or, or stop um, proton pump inhibitors and, and the lifestyle interventions that people might make instead. So for people who've got serious underlying conditions that require long-term treatment, these drugs look as good as they ever have, and we just need to be aware of the harms. For people who've got less severe, maybe indigestion, and are taking them long-term, good time to review. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, thank you very much. And our final article this month reviews the use of the live attenuated influenza vaccine that's being used for the childhood vaccination program. So what are the main points we cover in this one? So this is this is something which has been quietly building since 2012 when the Joint Committee on Vaccinations and Immunisation said, look, let's roll out immunising each year 2 to 16-year-olds with uh, influenza vaccine. And that's a rolling programme. So this year in England, it's 2 to 8-year-olds that are being targeted. This is not children who already have an at-risk conditions such as asthma and therefore already on the influenza program this is the new program in fit healthy two to eight year olds in England two to nine year olds in Wales who have been given the intranasal live attenuated influenza vaccine and the rationale for extending to this age group well this is a bit that's really interesting I mean what the two things that I came away with that I hadn't clocked is that first of all the age group most likely to be hospitalized with influenza is actually in the two to five year age group so that's really interesting it's not the elderly actually it's, it's that younger age group but also even more interestingly in some of the impact studies done in the pilot schemes uh, they showed that the that you know children are an important vector for viral transmission into the adult population so by actually immunizing children you prevent the onward transmission to the elderly and uh, say in one particular pilot study there was a 90% reduction in GP consultations for influenza-like consultations in children but also a 60% reduction in consultations for flu-like infections in adults in that area. So that's that's the particular issue I think which is very interesting. It's not just that we're protecting children by doing this but actually we're protecting um, adults and the elderly population as well. And just in brief, other aspects that we look at in the article? So we look at the evidence actually surrounding whether it's it works and, and it does. But I think also we look at some of the international issues associated with the flu vaccine. And we look at um, briefly actually also quite an interesting issue around the USA's experience with this live attenuated influenza vaccine. And they've had some problems where it seemed less effective in the USA and they wonder whether it's due to the H1N1 component but it's not clear why there's a discrepancy between its efficacy in the States and that in in Europe and uh, the UK. But still very much promoted in the UK. Absolutely and uh, you know if long as about 50% of uh, children take it up it's cost effective, um, it's obviously not a jab, it's, it's uh, take you know puffed up the nose and it, it should see a, a big improvement in levels of flu in the UK if it is taken up at that level. Provided the matching of the... As always, those clever people at WHO who match up the components to fit this year's flu uh, is, is always a magical moment.
and whether it does or not. But we will wait and see. OK, thank you very much. To read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com. And for any comments or suggestions, please email dtpeditor at bmj.com. Thank you.